My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to gather with you today. It's a joy to sit underneath and worship the word of Christ along with you as well. You would stay in your Bibles here in chapter 6 of Matthew. I'm sorry, Mark. It's where we'll be today, verses 1 through 6. Have you ever experienced rejection? It's painful. It's difficult, right? You put your best foot forward, your best self forward, and it's not good enough. Maybe it's a job, a career path, a group of friends, maybe a relationship that you're pursuing. You put yourself out there and it's not good enough and you are rejected. It's painful. It's piercing down into the depths of of our being. What we see this morning in our text is that Jesus, the Son of God, called by God for the mission of God, blessed by God, experiences rejection. And the more you love someone or love something, the more piercing that rejection is. And we see today that Jesus, he's going back to his hometown, the people that he loves, and he is rejected. And it's painful for him. But Jesus puts this rejection in terms of unbelief. I want, you, I want us to start here today in verse 6. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marvels because of their unbelief. So what we are seeing today is that from Jesus' perspective... This rejection that he's going to feel and experience in his hometown of Nazareth, he puts in terms of unbelief and he's marveling. And so I'm labeling this sermon, unbelievable unbelief. That's what we're looking at this morning. Unbelievable unbelief. Three characteristics of unbelief is what we're going to look at from this story. And the goal is very simple this morning. That as we look at unbelief, as we study it here in this text, that we would be drawn to authentic faith. An authentic, genuine faith that would rightly receive, honor, and celebrate Jesus for who He is. Let's pray for the Lord's help as we dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, God, to send your Holy Spirit to help us, give us ears to hear. These words that we will read and study this morning, God, help them not to just be an account, something that we're reading in a textbook. Help them to be what they really are, the words of God. And the word of life for our souls. We ask you to grant us faith this morning. We do not want you to marvel at our unbelief. We we want you to rejoice in the faith that would be present in all of us this morning. Would you work in our hearts that Christ may be formed in us for his glory and our eternal joy. 
We pray these things in his name. Amen. So the first point here, unbelief denies the truth about Jesus. Unbelief denies the truth about Jesus. We read in the first two verses, he went away from there and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many heard him and they were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom that's given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that's not where he grew up. He grew up in Nazareth, spent three decades in Nazareth. Nazareth is a small, obscure town, 25 miles south of where he's been with his disciples, the Sea of Galilee. Some scholars put it at 500 people, some maybe even 200. It's a little 60-acre village. And Jesus is going home there. And he likely knew everyone. A village that size is no more than maybe what's on this field times three. And so you spend 30 years there. You have your birthday parties there. You celebrate all the festivals. It's where Jesus went to school. It's where he studied. It's where he worshiped with the community, people of God. Jesus likely knew everyone, or at least with some acquaintance and vice versa. They, they knew Jesus. Everybody grew up together in the village of Nazareth. So you would think if, if any place is well-situated to receive Jesus, it would be this place. They're the ones that know Jesus best, but that's actually not what we find out happens. And this is not the first time Jesus has been back to Nazareth. We see in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, when he's inaugurating his ministry, he, he comes into Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue like he does here in our text, and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins reading, and he basically is telling them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of God is upon me. It's a mic drop of the century, and they can't handle it, and so they seek to kill him and throw him off a cliff. But Jesus escapes. He's gone. He's around doing his teaching and his ministry. And sometime later, Jesus decides it's time to go back. I still love these people. I want to minister to these people. God's, God has a word for them. There's, there's things that God maybe wants to do there in that community. And so Jesus now, he's taking his disciples back and they show up. And it's probably very different than what we saw the last couple of weeks where Jesus shows up with his disciples on the shore and immediately a crowd throngs around him and it's standing room only. Everybody wants to see this teacher, this miracle worker. They're all around him. That's not what appears to be happening in Nazareth. They walk into the village and there's no greeting. It's crickets. I'm not told, but that's kind of what I imagine. And then Jesus and his disciples walk into the synagogue, as was his custom. And Jesus begins teaching in the synagogue. And it says that the people were astonished. 
But it's not the type of astonishment that we might first see or hear in this text. They weren't astonished at the things that Jesus was doing and saying. They weren't astonished at His teaching. They were astonished that it was coming from this man. This man. Where did this fella get these things? It's kind of another way that it would be translated. Where did this fella, how how does this fella do these miracles? Where did this wisdom come from that was given to him? You hear kind of the tone, that's the emphasis that's here in this text. It's it's this guy. We're we're astonished that all these wonderful things are coming from this guy. And they can't handle it. It bothers them. They're asking these questions. They're very inquisitive. They're snickering with one another. But it's not that they may actually find an answer. That's not why they're asking these questions. They don't want to know the answer to these questions. They're denying what is before them. They're denying the facts. They're denying the evidence that's before them about who Jesus is. They do not want to believe it. Unbelief is causing them to say no to everything that is before them. Right? Who calms storms? Who casts out demons? Who heals and raises the dead? Jesus does. Who teaches with all this type of wisdom? Jesus does. Jesus does these great things. That means God does these things. We've been looking at that. That's what Mark's point is in these last few chapters. They're fixated on trying to find another reason, another justification. And they're pointing to wisdom and they're pointing to power as if it's something outside of this man, Jesus. They want to know, okay, what's the trick? Because we know this guy. He grew up. He's, he's He's not a rabbi. He grew up in our area. Who gave him these things? They don't understand. He teaches with wisdom because he is wisdom. He's able to do wonderful things filled with power because he is power. He doesn't just teach the word of God. He is the word of God. He is the very revelation of God to them. And they refuse to see it. Refuse to believe it. Their explanations, we saw this. Recent text, his family considers him out of his mind. Jesus, he's got a few screws loose up in his head. He's unstable. He belongs in a psychiatric ward. He's gone crazy. Or others, Pharisees, other leaders. We know what's going on with Jesus. He's got a demon. The only possible explanation from this, from what he's doing, is he's got to have a demon. This is satanic what Jesus is doing. Teaching the word of God like this, with authority. Operating in authority over all things. It's demonic, they say. Unbelief denies the truth about Jesus. But it goes one step even further. 
Unbelief also despises the person of Jesus. Verse 3 and 4. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Unbelief is not content merely with denying the facts about Jesus. Unbelief has to go farther and it despises the actual person of Jesus. Despises him. So they begin and they begin attacking his profession. Isn't this the carpenter? There's a broad word here for builder. And in that culture, context, it was derogatory. It's, 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 a, it's a profession that was lowly. Jesus did likely work with wood. Might have worked with other things as well. This is a lowly jab at Jesus. Isn't he the carpenter? There's no way that that carpenter could have amounted to anything. He's a nobody. He's nothing special. And then the assault picks up and it gets very, very personal. And is this not the son of Mary? What they should have said was, is this not the son of Joseph? Whether Joseph is alive or dead at this point, the right way the appropriate way to talk about somebody and where they're from, you always give the father's name. Is this not the son of Joseph? And that's not what they do here. They say, is this not the son of Mary? And what they're doing in that comment is they are mocking Jesus' mom. And they are calling Jesus an illegitimate child. We know where you come from, Jesus. We know how you came into this world. Come here preaching the word of God. We know about you. And we know your mom. We know the story about your mom. Right, 30 years later, the gossip still swirling around the community. We know about your mom, Jesus. Rumors and gossip. Then they bring up the rest of the family. And we know your brothers and your sisters, are they're here. They're a nobody family. They're all here. Nothing's amounted to them. So your family's not great. You're a nobody from a nothing sort of town. It's even what we see in uh, John 1, Nathaniel. He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's rhetorical. No, nothing good comes out of this place. And they took offense. They took offense at Jesus. The word offense here is scandalizo, which is where we get our word scandal. Which means they took incredible offense. Like R.C. Sproul puts it this way. This language indicates 
profound offense. They did not want to have any identification with him because he embarrassed them and he shamed them. Jesus, you are an embarrassment to us. It's shameful to be around you, to be in the same room with you. It's shameful to be connected with you in any way. You're a disappointment. Can't you imagine that this hurt Jesus deeply? These are the ones that he loves and grew up with. I imagine this was very painful. Jesus has an explanation, verse 4. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. For some strange reason, there's a connection here that Jesus makes. As it's been said before, that familiarity breeds contempt. There was something about the familiar nature of Jesus that drew them to jealousy, that drew them to to a place of contentment and unbelief, that caused them to refuse to accept anything different about Jesus. They had Jesus in a box, they had God in a box, and they were not going to allow that box to be broken. They were willing to accept. Everybody loves a prophet, that they come, comes from a faraway land and has a good word. We'll accept that, but man, if this person comes from one of us, no way. The jealousies, the bitternesses, the, 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 the closed-mindedness that is there. They can't receive the facts about Jesus and they despise him. They couldn't see that Jesus really was the God He really was God in the flesh, His divinity, but they also couldn't make sense of the fact that this divinity could be wrapped in such humility. God doing all these things, but then God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus from a nobody family in an obscure town, Working as a carpenter, they couldn't make sense of the divinity and the humility, the humanity even, of Jesus. And so they despise Him. How does Jesus respond? We've seen that unbelief denies the truth about Jesus, despises the person of Jesus. And finally, we see that unbelief cuts us off from the blessing of Jesus. Verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus decides that he's not going to do any more great works there. It says he could not do any more great works. It's not that he was unable to. Like somehow they've just tied Jesus' arms behind his back and he's powerless. He's frustrated. He can't, he can't do miracles. That is not what's happening here. He's unwilling to. He's unwilling to do more great works. He doesn't want to. 
Because he's refusing to be turned into a spectacle. He's refusing to just be a miracle worker. He's refusing to bring the the signs of the kingdom and do so outside of the context of relationship. The signs are always pointing to the king and to the kingdom. His healing and his restoration and redemption that he's bringing to all of us. But if you want those things and you don't want Jesus, Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it's going to work. You don't want to believe in me he knows that, based on what even in the other texts and the scriptures that we see, no amount of signs causes someone to believe. It is a work of God by the Holy Spirit to blow upon our hearts to see what's happening and to believe in it. Faith is a gift from God, a precious gift from God. And Jesus knows here that, hey, if you're not already believing the signs, you're not going to if I keep doing more. There was a few people, and he did heal. But in general, Nazareth was a place of unbelief. And it says Jesus marveled. He marvels at their unbelief. There's only two places in Scripture where it says that Jesus marvels. And they both center around faith, the issue of faith. Either its absence or its presence. Here in our text today, we see just Jesus marveling for the, about the absence of faith where it is most expected. The other place we see it is when Jesus encounters the Roman centurion where faith is least expected to be found and it's present. In that story, the, the Roman centurion has got a servant who's sick, dying, he hears about Jesus and he comes and finds Jesus. He's coming to Jesus for help. I need you to come heal my servant. And if you may remember the story, they're going to go and the centurion was going to go. Or they wanted him to go with them. And the centurion says, no, stop. I am not worthy. I am unworthy, Jesus, for you to even step foot Underneath my roof. I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, Jesus, so stop right there. And he says, I'm also a man of authority. I'm, I'm under authority and I'm in authority and I understand how this works. And I recognize that you, Jesus, are a man of authority. So please, you just give the word. I know. You just give the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, there says, he marvels. He then marvels at the presence of faith. And he says, I have not found such faith even in Israel. Such faith here causes Jesus to marvel. Is he marveling this morning at our unbelief? Or is he marveling that there is faith here? Back to our text in Mark it's interesting that we see two astonishments happening. We first see the people astonished that this man could amount to anything. And then Jesus turns around and it's his turn to be astonished. Jesus is astonished that you have no belief, that you are rejecting me. Astonished. Just thinking and meditating on that this week. 
that astonishment of Jesus. Just imagining him there with these people that he loves and cares about. And he's astonished. I've been with you for 30 years. You know me. You know my track record. I've never messed up. I've never sinned. I'm the righteous one. And even more than that, he's thinking to himself, I am God in the flesh. I am God here presented to these people. I am the source of everlasting joy and peace and blessing. I am the prize of the universe. I am the person that will satisfy your deepest longings and desires forever. I am here to do no harm. I am here not to condemn, but to give life. And that's what they're rejecting. And I think that's what causes Jesus to marvel. How could you reject this? How could you reject this? And so Jesus says the show's over, closes the curtain, and he goes on. We see other commentary about not, the, not this exact story, but to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Jesus is talking to them, and he says this, the reason why you do not believe is because you are not of God. The reason why you do not believe these works and believe anything about me and believe the one who sent me is because you are not from him. You are from a different father. You are from the devil. That's dark. That's what Jesus says. You are from the devil. It goes much deeper. Unbelief has its root system all the way down into a heart posture that is of the devil. It doesn't want the things of God. It despises the things of God. It wants self-glory and the glory of all the demonic powers. And it's absolute foolishness. Sin, rejection of Jesus is not rational. It will never be rational. It is irrational. It's not based on evidence. It's not based on something good presented to you and you somehow just misunderstood it. Like you see it all, but you deny it and you reject it. It's like if you've ever been to Bita Manda, I think one of the best dishes in the triangle if you've not been there, you need to go there, figure out how to go there, and try their pork belly soup. It is an unbelievable dish. It's a Laotian restaurant, and I'm just imagining this dish is put down before you in all of its glory. It's curry and whatever else is, co coconut milk and stuff in there. It's unbelievable when it's sitting there in all its glory, and you say no. And let's say you're starving even. You're starving. You've not eaten in a week. And that food gets put before you. Not only the food that will sustain your body and give you life, but enjoyment as well. And you say no. And to make it worse, you pick the bowl up and you smash it on the ground. Get it away from me. Don't want it. It's foolish. It's irrational. And it's demonic. To unbelieve in Jesus. The people reject him. And this is only the beginning. 
As one scholar I was reading this week said, here we see larger than ever the cross. The shadow of the cross begins to hang over our Lord. Rejection is starting to be primary in his ministry. Yeah, he's already had a little bit here and there, but here it's getting serious. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. These things were told hundreds of years ago that they would happen. As we saw in our study in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Or consider John chapter 1, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That was the ministry of our God. Rejected by all. His family, his hometown, later Israel, and indeed the whole world. Denying the facts and the evidence before us. Despising the person of Jesus. What does that lead to? Let's have him killed. Let's kill him. Don't want him around. What do the crowds chant? Crucify him. Crucify him. They're chanting with passion, eagerness. This is what we really want as a world. We want that man gone. We want him wiped off the planet. And so Jesus is tried as a criminal, found guilty, though innocent, and hung on a cross. He was despised and rejected by men. It's unbelievable unbelief that would do that. But in some way, that's all of us pre-conversion. And even as Christians, we still can struggle with faith. I struggle with faith. And we can look upon this display of Horrific evil on Christ. And we can say, where is our hope? Look what unbelief has done to the Savior of the world. But right there is also the point where God's grace is on most full display. The gospel is at work. Just as it was prophesied that the Son of Man would be rejected by people, so it has been prophesied that through the rejection of the Son, all sinful humanity that would place their faith in this Jesus would be welcomed in. Where sin runs deep, grace runs deeper still. God takes the most horrific event in the universe, 
the, the most horrific display of unbelief and he turns it into the emblem of our salvation. Jesus tasted the fullness of rejection so that we might experience perfect acceptance. Acceptance in all of the crud and the struggle and the unbelief that makes us sinners and people. Jesus' arms are open wide for all to come. First Peter says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You rejected Christ, but now he's the cornerstone of all salvation. <laughs> Everything rests upon this rejected stone. And he goes on, don't stumble any longer over this, but if you do, you are destined to do that. You're destined to disobey the word of Christ. John continues back in chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what did God do? He gave the right to become children of God, sons and daughters of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God works a miracle in our dead, demonic hearts where previously the thing that we despised, the person we despised, by a working of the Holy Spirit, we then see Jesus and we say yes. We say yes. There is the revelation of God. There is the wisdom of God. There is beauty unparalleled. There is the prize of the universe. There is living water. There is the bread from heaven. There is the fountain of all things good. It is Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our hearts. And that's where we get transferred from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of glorious, marvelous light. And we are born of God. A new nature comes in and God redeems us. God redeems us. We deserve to be on the cross where Jesus is, but we do not have to go there because he went there for us. Where is your belief this morning? Now is the time, unbeliever, to repent. There's grace here. I believe there's grace here this morning to believe for the very first time. It's not an accident that you are here, hearing the word of God. Recognize that unbelief is not neutral. It's filled with hostility towards God. And you can drop the weapons this morning and you can receive God. He is here for you. He's here to give himself to you in Christ. And believer, may today be a moment where we return strengthened in faith. No matter what you've done this morning, no matter how far you may have drifted from Christ, no matter the anger that maybe you feel towards Christ for something that's happened in your life, today there is repentance available by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Do not know what happened to the rest of Jesus' family. 
We know that Mary was a believer. But we, and we do know what happens to James and Judas. They end up believing. James believes. James ends up writing the book of James. Judas ends up believing. Judas writes the book of Jude. God keeps pursuing them. Jesus left Nazareth, but God kept pursuing them by His Spirit. And God met him, met them, pursued them. It was like the hound of heaven, like Charles Spurgeon calls it. Pursued them down and transformed their hearts, redeeming them. And God will do the very same thing for you this morning. He comes to you now. He pursues you now. Open up your heart and believe in Him. Receive Christ this morning. Honor Him as the God that He is, as the revelation that He is, and enjoy Him as the prize and the satisfaction and the joy that He is. May we all be encouraged this morning towards accepting, receiving, and honoring our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your word this morning. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit. Even now, we're so dependent, God, to, to seal it upon our hearts. Cause us to bear fruit for your glory, we pray, God. Bear fruit in life to carry the testimony and the witness of the things that we do now believe. Help us to enjoy Christ and to spread Christ. And we pray, God, for the struggling this morning. We pray even a prayer that's found in the Scriptures. We believe, O oh God, but help our unbelief. God, would you reach into the places of our doubt this morning? Those crevices of our hearts where we're still just a little bit unsure. We need you, Holy Spirit, to, to work faith into our hearts, assure us of the gospel of Jesus, who He is and the work that He has accomplished for us in the entirety of salvation, both now and forevermore. It's in your name we pray. Amen.